I hope you're well this morning. Um, hope you've had a, a great weekend. Uh, my, my name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here um, at the church at Blue Ridge, and um, really glad that you're here this morning. Glad that um, uh, that you have have chosen to uh, to worship with us. And as always, uh, I like to do this every time I'm on stage. If you're a guest with us this morning, uh, we're especially glad you're here, and want to invite you to please hang around after the service. Introduce yourself to to someone to someone new, uh, perhaps even me. I'd love the chance to, uh, to get to know you and uh, share with you a little bit more about our church. Uh, go ahead this morning, uh, take your Bibles or your electronic device, whatever you use, and turn to uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, we have uh, recently kicked back off a, a sermon series that we're calling I Am as we're walking expositionally through uh, John's Gospel. And uh, we spent uh, the, the best part of last year uh, working through the, the first half of John, that was uh, John chapters 1 through 12, and uh, we took a little break and uh, have, have jumped back in in the second half with, uh, with John chapter 13, where we've been uh, for the past several weeks. And so that's what we're going to pick up this morning, uh, John chapter 13. Um, uh, we'll, our text this morning is verses 31 uh, through 38. So uh, John 13, 31 through 38, follow along with me in your Bible, I'll, uh, I'll begin reading there in verse 31. When he, talking about Jesus or Judas, when, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. For Jesus and, and his disciples uh, in this part of, of John's gospel, the time for Jesus to say goodbye to them has come. Um, he, is about, uh, he is about to leave. Jesus has, has just, as we saw a few weeks ago, he's, he's cleansed their feet. Soon he's going to go to the cross. He's going to cleanse their hearts. And now that, that Judas, the betrayer, now that he's off into the night, um, to do the thing that, that he had set in his heart to do, to betray his master. Now Jesus has effectively cleansed this little community of disciples that he has around them. Now, as I said, just a, just a short time before our passage this morning, Jesus had, had stooped both uh, physically and uh, both figuratively and physically. He, he'd wiped their dirty feet clean. He, he used his own hands. He used his own clothing. It was a, an act of sacrificial love that had stunned the disciples and anybody else in that room, right? 
No master, no master before Jesus had ever done such a thing, had stooped to, uh, to serve his disciples in quite the same way as Jesus did that night. It, it just wasn't, it wasn't normal. Masters don't do that to their disciples. The, the opposite is normally true. And what, what the disciples, what the men in the room, what, what they didn't understand is that Judas leaving had, had set into motion a, a chain of events, a chain of unstoppable events. The dominoes were falling, and ultimately they would lead to the crucifixion, to Jesus' death. Right? Jesus was leaving, and for those, the men in the room, those who hadn't walked away like Judas, Jesus was, was leaving them and entrusting them to carry on the work that, that he'd started. Right, The, the mission that, that Jesus had been entrusted to, he was passing on to them. As a matter of fact, if you're reading through John's gospel, if you're just reading straight through it, everything in the story has been building to this moment where Jesus is leaving his disciples with, with his last words, his goodbye, if you will. Everything's been building to this. Now, uh, I've got a slide up on the screen that'll kind of show you the structure of John chapter 13, verses 17. It's, it's considered by most to be, uh, maybe you've heard this before, to be Jesus' farewell discourse, all right? It's called a farewell discourse. Um, it's, not, um, it's not necessarily unique to the Bible. There are other types of ancient literature that have these types of, of, um, of texts in them where a leader, a great leader, gives a very important uh, final words to his followers, now, um, in John, uh, the farewell discourse is, is bracketed on the front end with the foot washing. So, so what we read and studied a few weeks ago, the foot washing is kind of the, the, uh, the, the beginning, the, the preamble, if you will, all right? And then it's, it's bracketed on the, on, the, on the end by a prayer that maybe some of you have heard if, you, if you've read the Gospel of John before. It's called the, the high priestly prayer, right? Where Jesus uh, prays to the Father. He prays that they would be one in Him, right? So you've got the foot washing, you've got the high priestly prayer, and everything in the middle is technically Jesus' goodbye speech, His, his parting words of instructions to His disciples. So, so our passage this morning, what, what we're going to be studying this morning is kind of like the introduction to that. A lot of the things that we're going to talk about this morning, uh, we're, going to have to, we're going to have to zoom over them because Jesus is going to come back to them in greater detail in the, in the preceding verses um, in chapter 13 through, through 17. All right? Jesus has been gathering this, uh, this new community of followers, of disciples around him, and he has some very important words to say to them before he tells them, Goodbye. And there's one, there's one uh, main idea, one thing that I want us to see this morning in Jesus' kind of introduction to his farewell discourse, and it's this. By Jesus' suffering, we are invited into the love of God. By Jesus' suffering, we are invited into the love of God and called to love one another as he loved us. By loving each other in this way, we declare Jesus' glory to the world. All right? Jesus' suffering has invited us in to the love of God. It's a, as we're going to see, it's a foreign love. It doesn't come naturally to us. We've, invited, we've been invited into this love of God. We've been called to love one another as he loved us. And by doing this, Jesus says we declare the glory of the gospel to the world. That's the, that's the main idea. That's the big thing that we're running after, after this morning to keep in your head. Now, oddly enough, what, what Jesus says comes next, which is, which is really strange as we're reading through John's gospel, Jesus says what comes next is glory, Jesus' glory. 
as readers, right, we, we know where the story's going. I, I mean, I kind of just told you, right? Even if you never read John's gospel before, I just told you it's going to, to crucifixion, right? And it should strike us as odd that Jesus would say what comes next is, is glory. He says there in verse 31, now, now the Son of Man is glorified. Now, how, how can that be? How can it be that now Jesus' glory comes? If now, if what comes next, if what comes like right now is, is the cross, how, how is there glory in that? That doesn't make sense. Like, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, a, a really smart guy, I don't think, but it sounds an awful lot, lot more like shame and suffering than it does of glory, right? The cross, the mockery, the, the shame the crucifixion, the beatings, all of that doesn't sound like glory, but Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, right? Now, the the key to answering this question, this question that um, that we should all be asking as we're reading through this text, is the little title that Jesus gives of himself there in verse 31. He calls himself the Son of Man, the Son of Man. We've probably heard that before. It's actually Jesus' favorite title for himself in the New Testament. If Jesus is going to refer to himself as something, he's going to call himself the Son of Man, all right? Now, um, but this, this title actually has Old Testament roots, all right? And um, one of the best places to go and look and, and understand it is in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14 uh, the prophet there is given this, this really strange dream of the end times, an end times vision, okay? And there's this ruler there called the Son of Man. And this, this glorious figure whom God gives an eternal kingdom to and dominion and power and rule over the peoples of the earth forever in the last days, right? So, there, so there's, there's glory attached to the idea in the Old Testament of the Son of Man, But then we get to the New Testament and the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they they seem to point out something completely different anytime they write about Jesus using the title Son of Man. They talk about Jesus suffering. As the Son of Man, he came to suffer and to die. So there's these two kind of competing ideas behind this title, the Son of Man. And then John comes along. And John writes his gospel. And if, if you've been with us long enough, you, one of the things you notice about John's gospel is that it's very different from any of the other gospel accounts, right? John kind of blazes his own trail. He does his own thing. And what John does is he takes these two ideas, glory and suffering, and he brings them together in the title, the Son of Man, all right? He, he's been doing it ever since chapter 1 in John's gospel. Been joining together these two ideas, and it's very important that we pick up on it. It's very important that we see it. None of Jesus' suffering, all that we're getting to, right, in the end of John's gospel, the cross, all of that stuff, the, the scorn for eating with sinners that we've already seen Jesus receive, the, the scorn for touching the sick, the, the accusations that, that he was an illegitimate son, right? All of these false accusations, that he was a sinner, even that he was demon-possessed, right? The plots to kill him, every lash that he's going to receive at the hands of his murderers, every thorn of the crown that pierced his brow, all of it, all of the, all of the suffering, John wants us to see that ultimately it was for his glory, Isn't that odd? Isn't that strange? 
John is bringing these two ideas together that it is through Jesus' suffering that he was being glorified. And the moment of his greatest suffering, Jesus is telling us here in John's gospel, it's right now. The crucifixion is looming. It's coming. It's right now. In the, in the suffering of the cross, Jesus would be glorified like never before. That's what he's talking about right there when he says, now the Son of Man is glorified. Jesus was about to be hoisted high on the cross as the, the promised lamb, the, the sacrifice for the sins of God's people. And John will even say the sins of the entire world. Jesus was going to fling back the curtains, if you would, in a dark room and allow the glory of God to invade. This, this suffering servant, this man hanging on a cross, innocent, was declaring the glory of God to the world. The glory of a God that loved the world so deeply. Remember this passage, John 3, 16, that he was willing to give his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus was, was going to be given glory through the cross, through his suffering. But what else does John tell us there? What else does Jesus tell us? He knew that the Father would glorify him as well. So Jesus is bringing God glory on the cross, the, the glory of the gospel, but Jesus is also receiving glory himself. And Jesus was confident that unlike the vision in Daniel that this glory was coming in the end times, Jesus says, no, it's going to happen right now. It's immediately at once. Jesus wasn't going to have to wait just, just three days, right? Just three days for the, the resurrection and a little while longer for the ascension when he would return to his Father's right hand in glory. And it was through suffering that Jesus was going to be glorified and proclaim God's glory to the world. Through suffering. So it's, it's through suffering that we see Jesus' glory. But Jesus also has some instructions in verses 33 through 35 that he wants to give his disciples. He has instructions for while he's away. Jesus, he, he understands, right? He understands that the time is running short and, and he's going to leave and he needs to give these men some, some important instructions. We can see this in verses 33 through 35. He, he calls them his his little children. Now, if, if you're reading that and you, and you want to you really, really see what Jesus is doing there, you should read it as my dear ones, right? The way that a, a father or a mother might talk to his son or his daughter. My, my dear ones. He loves these. He loves these men and women. He, he loves them and in, the, in his perfect knowledge, he knows the storm that they're about to face. The betrayal of Judas, that was going to be nothing that was going to be small potatoes compared to watching their friend. This guy that they had lived with, ate with, experienced all of these incredible things with, Judas' betrayal was going to be nothing compared to watching him tried, falsely accused, and murdered by crucifixion. He's preparing them for this inevitable reality. And here's his first instruction in verse 33. His first instruction is this, where I'm going, you can't come. You can't go with me. Now, um, if you remember, if, if you've been with us um, for the first half of John's gospel, um, Jesus told the, pretty much the same thing to the Jews. In John chapter 7, verses 33 through 34, Jesus told the Jewish leaders something similar. He said, I'm going away, you will seek me, but you will not find me. 
That's what he told the Jews. Going away, you'll seek me, but you will not find me. But what he says here in John 13 is different. Did you pick up on the difference there? They can't go with him where he's going. They will seek him, but Jesus never says anything about them not being able to find him. That's important. That's important. Jesus never says anything about them not being able to find him. This is important, and Jesus is going to make it even more clear in just a few minutes when we get to the the interaction that he has with Peter. The important part right now is simply this. Guys, listen, you can't go with me. Where I'm going, you can't follow me. Now, one of the things I tried to do this week as I, was, as I was studying this passage is something that I'd like to ask each of you to do like right now as we're sitting. I want to ask you to try to put yourself in the shoes of these men and women as they're sitting in that room hearing this, um, this man who also happened to be God say these things to them, all right? As I, as I did that this week, the conclusion I came to is I cannot imagine anything more confusing or terrifying for them than to hear this guy, hear Jesus say, I'm going away and you can't come. Think about it. Think of, think of who Jesus had told them that he was, the Messiah. Right? Think of all the things that they had seen him do. Surely these, these men and women are, are thinking like, Jesus, you're leaving now? You're leaving now after all of this? What about all those miracles that we just witnessed you do? Right? What about all those? Isn't it time, Jesus, for you to kind of take over, take charge, get rid of the Romans, set up your kingdom, and we all live happily ever after? And you're leaving? Like, we know you have power, Jesus, they must have thought, right? We know you have awesome power because we saw you raise Lazarus from the dead. We saw you take a dead man and bring him back to life. And you want to just leave? You want to walk away? They must, have been, they must have been terrified. They had left their jobs. They'd left their homes. Some of them had left their families to follow Jesus. And now he's leaving and they can't go? They couldn't go. They couldn't go with him to the cross. Only he was the sinless Savior. Only he could die for the sins of the world. Jesus is telling them, listen, you're going to look for me, but you can't, go where I'm, you can't come where I'm going. You can't go with me. And, and in fact, they would. After the resurrection, the disciples, they look for Jesus. They, they look for him. They, they weren't yet made clean by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. They, couldn't def- they definitely couldn't go with him to the cross. And they weren't yet made clean by the cross, so they couldn't follow Jesus into the eternal presence and glory of the Father. They, they couldn't go with him. So Jesus' first instruction is, listen guys, you can't go with me. But Jesus' second instruction is he is a new command. He has something for them to do while he's away. Because remember, remember, like I told you, he told the Jews that they would seek him and not find him. But these guys are different. They're going to be able to seek him. They're going to be able to find him. And eventually they're going to be able to go with him. So Jesus says, in the meantime, I've got a new command for you. While I'm gone, I've got something that I need you to do. Any... Uh, any parents in here have the privilege of being able to leave your kids at home, like when you go out with a spouse or something like that? Anybody have that privilege? Man, that's awesome. Thank you, Jen. I, I look forward to the day when I can look at my son, because I get arrested if I do this now. If I leave my four-year-old and my one-year-old at home, I, I would get arrested if someone ratted me out. Um, yeah, that's right. But if I were to leave my kids at home, if I could do that and say, listen, boys, don't burn the house down. 
No backflips off the couch onto your little brother or anything like that. Your mom and I, we're gone. We'll see you later. That would be awesome. Like that would be awesome if I could give them. I can't do that. But that's, that's what Jesus is doing here, right? They're his dear ones, his little children. And he's saying, guys, listen, you can't go with me, but while I'm gone, I've got something very important that I need you to do, something very important. Look at, look at verses 34 to 35. He says, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the, the second part of Jesus' instructions. But once again, if you're reading, if you're reading this kind of closely, you're reading through it, you're thinking, like, I've heard that before. Like, that's not new. It's not new to love, love one another, right? How is this command new, right? Way back in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, in chapter 19, verse 18, God, God commanded this. He said, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Right there it is. God's told them before. He's told his people before to love one another. So what in the world is new about this, this new command that Jesus has given? Here, here's what I think. In one sense, this command is new because the standard, the standard for love has now been changed forever. The standard for love has now been changed forever. Never before had God's people had a real life, flesh and blood human being standing right there in front of them as the perfect example of how they were to love one another, right? To love fellow believers. They never had an example like this before. God's people had had leaders, don't get me wrong. I mean, we could go back through the Old Testament and, and talk about some really good leaders, but none of them were perfect. They were all flawed. None of them were sinless, perfect examples like Jesus who would die in the place of his disciples. The standard had changed. But, but here's the deal. We, we can't stop short there. I was, I was challenged on my thinking, with my thinking on this this week because we, we can't stop short there and say that the only thing that's new about this is that the example the example that Jesus gives us, that the standards change. And here's why. If Jesus is just our example to follow, to, to love one another, by what power do we have to follow his example, right? By what power do I have to love you the way that Jesus has loved me? I don't do that naturally. I mean, let's just be real. Like, I don't love you that way. I don't do that naturally. I love myself. I love myself naturally. And if you're honest with yourself this morning, that's who you love most in the world. You love yourself. So that, it's dangerous just to say that what's changed here is a, a new example, a new standard. There has to be more. What I think is, is that we have a new situation in which this command is given, a new, a new context. Now, here's what I mean by that. In the same way that God's people had never had this, this perfect example in front of them, God's people had never been in quite the same relationship with God as they would soon be because of Jesus. Think about this for a moment. Now the Son of Man is glorified in verse 31. God wasn't waiting around to the end times, to the final days to be with His people, right? He wasn't waiting around for then. His kingdom was breaking into the world now at the cross, right? Once Jesus leaves, 
He's going to explain in John chapter 14, right? Uh, excuse me, in John chapter 14, before Jesus leaves, he is going to he explain that after he leaves, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit's going to live in their hearts. He would be in them. Jesus, by his Spirit, would be in them, and they would be in him. Jesus would be in them, they would be in him. It gets kind of confusing and tongue-tied there, but that's what Jesus says, right? They would not just have an example of Jesus' love. They would be part of the love that Jesus had experienced forever between him and his Father. They would be in the middle of it because Jesus would be inside them. It's just Jesus has to go away first so that he can connect them to it. This is why Jesus is going to say in John 15, my little children, you are the vine, I am the vine, and you are the branches, right? He is this vine that connects us to the love that exists between the Father and the Son, and we are these little branches that feed off the nutrients of his love. More than an example to follow, Jesus was giving them an invitation. It's an invitation to come in, be filled with this love that, that Jesus and God had always shared, and then to go show that same love to one another. It's way more than just an example. Now the question becomes now, okay, so we have this example, we have uh, Jesus' love within us if we are in Christ, filling us up. What does this look like practically? How are we to love one another here at the church at Blue Ridge? And, and let's be clear, there is a, there's a sense in which John here is very specifically, or Jesus rather, is very specifically calling us to love one another as, as fellow believers, as church members. Now, uh, there's a tension in John. We're supposed to love one another as fellow believers, but we're also supposed to love the world. And John's not really interested in, in, tell, in saying that one is more important than the other. He just kind of puts them both out there. But for our purposes this morning, the, the love that Jesus is calling us to show is towards one another, towards fellow believers. What does that look like practically? Now, I think it can take on a thousand different forms, okay? But what I want to do is I want to give you some, some kind of practical ideas to kind of help get our hands and minds around what it means to love one another as Jesus has loved us. And if you're interested... Um, a guy by the name of Bruce Milne writes a book called We Belong Together. It's an incredible book. I don't think it's in print anymore. If you can find one, please buy it. I'll buy it from you if you don't want it. But buy it and read it. It would really encourage you in this. So how, what can this look like practically? Well, first I think it's this. To love one another as Jesus loved us is, is a love that sees every believer as they truly are, a man or woman for whom Christ died. Here's, he, let me illustrate it this way. If I were really good at math, which, by the way, I'm not, I'm terrible at math, um, and I were to assign every follower of Jesus in this room a number that designated their value, the number would not be high, there would not be a number high enough. Because here's the truth of the matter this morning. If you are in Christ, the price on your head and on all of our heads is the blood of his son, the blood of his eternal son. That's the, that's the price that God was willing to pay for you. Now, consider this morning how you might treat your brothers and sisters in light of that knowledge, that the price on their head is the blood of Christ. How might that change the way you interact with them, you speak to them, you serve them, you love them? Second, this is a love that's not based 
on what we stand to gain. It's a love that's not based on what we stand to gain from it. Bruce Milne calls this a love for the worthy, a love for the worthy. The love that Jesus is calling us to is not a love for the worthy. We do this all the time, right? We, we love one another as long as the math works out in our favor, right? As long as I stand to benefit and gain from it. This is, uh, as long as I stand to profit from my sacrifice or my service of love to you, I'm all in. I'm all in. But here's the deal. Jesus already knew what it would cost him to love us, and he, he, he paid it anyway. He didn't stand to gain anything by loving us. We were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins when he loved us by dying in our place. But then the flip side of that is it's a love that expects to take a loss. It's a love that expects to lose. Jesus wasn't surprised by our price tag. Have you ever thought about that before? He, he wasn't surprised that in order for me to be his child, he would have to give his life, that he would have to suffer and die How might you show love to a brother or sister this week, even though it will cost you, even though you will lose by doing it? This is also a love that relies on the Spirit's power. Now, now, as I said, we're gonna we're gonna flesh these ideas out when we get to John chapter uh, John chapter fourteen, really through about through about seventeen. But suffice it to say, this morning, one of the primary ways that the Spirit works out this uh, this love within us, this power to love one another, as Jesus has loved us, is through the Word. In John chapter seventeen, verse seventeen, Jesus says he's praying to God in the high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's through our submission to the word that the spirit works within us the same love that Jesus had for us and empowers us to love one another. So here at the church at Blue Ridge, in order to cultivate this, we we have these things called cell groups where um, two or three followers of Jesus get together. They study God's word together. They hold each other accountable to it. They submit underneath it and they grow in their understanding of it and ultimately in their ability to love one another as Jesus has loved them. So are are you a part of one? If you would like to be, come, come talk to Daniel. Come talk to me. We would love to get you involved with that. One of the primary ways that the Spirit works this power out within us is through the Word. But then this power is also sensitive to our sin. This power is also sensitive to our sin. Paul commands in Ephesians 4.30 that we not grieve the Spirit within us, but instead, according to chapter 5, verse 18, that we be filled with with the Spirit. We, what he means by be filled with the Spirit there is to allow the Spirit to have control over our lives. There's nothing, there's nothing uber mystic there about it. It's as we come under submission to the Word, as the Spirit is working that within us, we allow that Word and the power of the Spirit to change the way that we think and act, all right? But when we sin, when we live and think in ways that are contrary to God's word, we can grieve the Spirit and we can short-circuit the Spirit's power within us as we're trying to love one another. So it's going to be impossible for us to love one another as Jesus has loved us if we're holding on to things like jealousy, pride, deceit, hate, or anger. So it's a power through the Spirit that's sensitive to our sin. 
But then lastly, this kind of practical ways that this works itself out is this is a love that has hands and feet. This is not um, abstract or theoretical, right? Jesus' love for his disciples was very practical. It met real world needs when they arose. Their feet were dirty, right? They had dirty, stinky, nasty feet that needed cleaning. So he was pleased as their master and Lord, the one who was about to go die on the cross for them, to kneel and take their grime upon himself. What real world need can you meet this week for a brother or sister in Christ? Is there a meal that needs to be cooked? A bill that needs to be paid? A chore that needs to be done? Maybe just a kind word that needs to be spoken? It's a love that's practical, that has hands and feet. And friends, as we love one another, um, as our love for one another is to be like Jesus' love, it's to be a love that's willing to stoop, to, to stoop and wash disgusting feet, to dine with and even die for friends, right? Die for friends that would betray us. It's this kind of Christ-like, Christ-empowered love that Jesus says the world can't help but take notice of. The world can't ignore it. John is teaching us that as we love like Jesus loved us, through our participation, right? We're participating in that love because the Spirit's in us and and we are in God, right? Through our participation in it, as we love one another, as we suffer because of it, as, as we pay the price for it, we bring glory to God. We declare the gospel to the world. Think about it this way. Every time one of you in this room denies yourself so that a sister in Christ might have, God's glory is proclaimed. Every time you take the low place so that a brother can be exalted, the glory of God in the gospel is proclaimed. Every record of wrong not held against another brother or sister in this room I mean, perhaps that's the best one, right? Declares that Jesus hasn't held our records of wrong against against us, doesn't it? And declares the glory of the gospel to the world. In a sense, it's as if we are pulling back the curtain in a dark room, allowing the blinding light of God's glory in the gospel to invade and fill it. On February 2nd, our our missional communities, we're we're, we're hosting uh, Super Bowl parties and, and we're not doing it just for, the, uh, just for a reason to get together and watch the Super Bowl, although there's nothing wrong with that. I happen to like watching the Super Bowl. But we're going to use it in a very intentional way because we want to provide a real-world a real opportunity for you guys to practice this, to try this. So um, all of our missional communities are, are working together. They're, um, they're taking down names of people that, that they know individually, as that they know, people that are far from the Lord, that don't know Jesus, people that they're praying for and sharing the gospel with. And we're gonna, we're gonna each, each of our missional communities is gonna invite them into this, this Super Bowl party. We're, there's no set agenda, there, there's nothing like that. We're just there to spend time together, have fun together, and we're trusting that, that everyone's there who, who's disconnected from the gospel, who's disconnected from us, are gonna see a glimpse in our love for one another of the gospel. So, so begin praying with me now. I, I reached out to your missional community leaders um, yesterday. 
giving some, um, some clear instructions about how to do this, about begin praying now that for the people that you know that you're going to invite, that, that God would use these few hours that we're going to spend together to give them just a taste, just a taste of the love that we show one another, the love that Jesus has shown us. But then lastly this morning, we see that Peter doesn't get it. He doesn't get this, um, uh, this incredible sense of love that Jesus is, is bringing into the world through his suffering by the Spirit that's going to live within us. Peter doesn't understand. He, he doesn't get what's going on. And, and we have to be fair to Peter. Nobody gets it. Nobody in the room that night got what Jesus was talking about because they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet to, to help them understand, right? And and Peter, Peter wants to know, Jesus, where are you going? I want to go with you right now, right? I want Wherever you're going, Jesus, let me go with you right now. And, and look at Jesus, look at his care, his love, his tenderness, right? Even, even when Peter is, is disagreeing with him and trying to push uh, the envelope a little farther than he should. Jesus is so kind. He's like a, a loving father explaining to his son, right? Peter, you can't go with me now. You can't go with me now. But afterward, you can. Remember I said Jesus would clarify for us? Afterward, you can follow me. But Peter still, he won't hear of it. He will not hear of it. Now, It'd be really easy to be, to be super hard on Peter here, right? Like, geez, Peter, I mean, Jesus is, is telling you you can't go, but you can come later. Like, give it a rest, man. But we're going to get a little later in John's gospel, we're, we're going to see uh, the extent of Peter's devotion to Jesus. In the garden, Jesus, Peter's going to pull out his sword and lop off a guy's ear in defense of Jesus. Peter is devoted to his master, but his, his devotion is misguided by misunderstanding. He, he doesn't understand. And, and as often the case, right, passion mixed with understanding, it creates a, a really bitter cocktail. And a lot of times it causes us to, to speak more than we understand. And that's exactly what Peter does in, in verse 37. He says, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. And as you're reading through John's gospel, kind of the air just kind of leaves the room right there, right? Because we all know what's about to happen, right? Lord, I'll lay down my life for you. The irony drips off the page with Jesus' words. Will you? Will you, Peter? Will you lay down your life for me? The answer, of course, is no. Peter's not going to lay down his life for Jesus. The opposite is true, right? Jesus has to lay down his life for him, in fact, Peter's going to deny him three times. And, and Peter's not the only one that denies them. They all run away. They all hide. It just so happens that Peter is the loudest. They would all fail him over and over again. They would fail to live up to this standard. That's why Jesus had to go away, right? He had to leave to go to the cross to pay the penalty for all that failing, for all that betrayal. He was the only one in the room that night without sin, the only one who could die for him. And after that, after his death and the sending of the Spirit, they would be able to follow him. Only then would their hearts be clean. Only then would they have Jesus' example of self-sacrificing love. Only then would they have the Spirit living within them, welcoming, into, welcoming them into God's love. 
right? They couldn't follow Jesus to the cross. That wasn't their calling. And the thing that we need to take away from that this morning is neither is it ours. It's not our calling to follow Jesus to the cross. But what they could do is they could take up Jesus' cross after he, after he died on it. They could take it up and follow after him. And that's exactly what all the men and women in this room do. They take up Jesus' cross and they follow after him, sharing in his suffering. And we can do the same thing. We're not called to follow Jesus to the cross, but to bear his cross by loving one another sacrificially. This kind of love for one another, it declares the glory of the gospel to the world. This morning, we're going we're gonna to sing um, in just the next few moments. And I, I want to give every person in this room an opportunity to, to respond to John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. I want to I uh, give you three things this morning, three ways that I think that you can respond to this. Right there in your seats, while we sing, um, you, can, you can do this quietly as you pray, however the Lord leads you. I think there's at least three ways that you can respond this morning. The first way you can respond is that you might need to take Jesus' invitation into the love of God for the very first time, Right? You might need to take that invitation for the very first time. And, and listen, if that's you, believe it or not, John actually wrote this entire gospel just for you. Honestly, I'm not making that up. He wrote it just for you. And if you don't believe me, take your Bible, turn to John 20, verses 30 through, 30, verses 30 through 31, and read there that where John says that, uh, that he has written down these things so that you would know that Jesus is who he said he was and that you might believe. Believe that Jesus died in your place for your sins. If you'll believe this, if you'll believe that this morning, Jesus says that he'll give you eternal life. He will welcome you into the eternal love that he shares with him and his son. Others of you this morning, you, you might have a broken relationship, even in this room. There might be a person in this room whom you have failed to show this kind of Christ-like love to, and it's severed, it's broken your relationship with them. This is what I want to encourage you to do this morning while we sing. Go find that person. Go to that person right now as we're singing and, and seek reconciliation. Seek forgiveness. Throw yourself on mercy, Right? Don't, don't be afraid. Ask your neighbor to step out of the way and go find this person. Seek forgiveness and restoration because here's the deal this morning, Church at Blue Ridge. As Jesus has just taught us, our gospel witness depends on it. It depends on our love for one another being just as Jesus loved us. And then finally this morning, a third way that we can respond is that you might need to take just a few moments where you sit and just make a plan with God. Because here's the deal. It's really easy to go long periods of time without participating in these kinds of, of sacrificial acts of love for one another. It's really easy to get caught up in ourselves with no, uh, with no necessarily overt sinful intention. We just get so busy that we forget that we're called to love one another in this way. So maybe you, need to, maybe you need right where you are while we're singing to commit to a plan with God that some way this week, God show me one way this week that I can love another brother or sister here at the church at Blue Ridge in the same sacrificial way that you've loved me. Let me pray for us. Micah and the band's gonna come. And then please take that, 
take the opportunity to respond as the Lord leads you. Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we stand in awe of the love that you've shown us. Uh, we stand in awe even more that you would invite us into it, that you would not just give us an example to follow, but that you would welcome us into that same love that has existed between you and the Father forever. And that as we are filled up by that love, that we would, would go out and bear fruit, fruit, the fruit of, of loving one another as you have loved us. We, uh, we confess to you as fallen uh, yet redeemed sinners that we, we have far to go in this. I pray that you would, you would help us as we are submitting to your word. I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of our failings in this, that you would bring to mind broken relationships, that you would bring to mind those instances where forgiveness needs to be extended, that you would bring to mind uh, those relationships where reconciliation needs to be sought. Even if, even if they're not in this room, I pray that you would give us the courage to go and seek out those men and women and be reconciled, to trust that, that your blood covers all of our sins. Father, help us as a body to love one another as you have loved us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.